Welcome to the Safety Talks podcast. Safety Talks seeks to educate and inform through our conversations with stakeholders, experts, and influencers in all aspects of occupational health and safety. We cover current practices and new developments in emerging technologies, management systems, legislation, and better practices. I'm your host, Patrick Robinson, and I'm proud to contribute to the Safety with Purpose podcast network hosted by Safeopedia, where our mission is to lead, educate, and inspire. Today on Safety Talks, I'm chatting once more with Robert Pater, the founder and creator of MoveSmart, an organization that specializes in injury reduction through building high-level mental and physical tools to improve culture and performance. Robert is a prolific occupational health and safety author and commentator whose work dates back nearly 40 years through publications like Occupational Health and Safety Magazine, Professional Safety, and in addition to many keynote and other presentations at a variety of safety forums and professional development conferences over those years. Industrial Safety and Hygiene News selected Robert as one of the Power 101, people who move and shake the safety world. Today's discussion is based on Robert's recent article, Internalizing Safety, where we cover 10 practical steps organizations can assess and see where each of these items may fit as a means to improve health and safety leadership and culture at all levels of their organization. And now, Robert Pater. Robert Pater, welcome back to Safety Talks. Thanks, Pat. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation as well. Today, for the listeners, we are talking about Robert's article that was published in Professional Safety Magazine called Internalizing Safety. And this is an area where I think many organizations are looking to improve their safety culture um, through having um, individuals within the company, be they employees, line supervision, uh, management, owning more of um, the safety process and and taking a bigger part. And that's, by and large, what this uh, article is about. Before we we jump into... um, uh, the, the 10 specific things that you uh, recommend to move organizations down this road of internalizing uh, safety. Let's just get grounded in, in some of the fundamentals. So as always, uh, safety excellence begins with leadership. So let's talk a little bit um, about internalizing safety and why it requires perceptive and focused leadership. I, I think that's um, perception leads towards decision-making, which leads towards allocation of resources and actions. There's a strong connection between how leaders, what they see, what they believe, what we think, and what we actually wind up doing. And what we wind up doing and reinforcing and messaging and reinforcing is what we get. Yeah, so that to me is the link. So how do you get to that place? And, and one of the things that we have found in our view and look at cultural uh, step-ups in safety is that the highest level of safety performance of trailing indicators is one where safety is thought to be owned by workers for themselves. I don't care what people are looking at or who's, what's going on, whether at work or at home, it's part of them. They're self-motivated and self-renewed. So that is what the, the, 
question is, is for leaders to start, I think, by saying, okay, let's take a hard, honest look at our organization. How much of it is spent trying to motivate people from without? Cajoling, punishing, uh, rewarding, uh, writing rules for other people far flung. And the other side of that is, when we're doing a lot of that, and we do more of that, do we, if we don't make a, an impro- a improvements, there's no delta in the improvements of people's behaviors in terms of, the, of people's actions, maybe we need to start a different approach rather than do more of the same. So in other words, if people are not following current policy procedures, the best answer is not to write more policies and procedures as a default. Yeah. yeah. You make the point that... Um uh, in real life, it's rarely cost-effective or even possible to environmentally control or engineer out all hazards. And then you, you go on to say that command and control safety systems um, have repeatedly been shown to have limited effectiveness in raising performance and culture in the long term, and that that approach is inherently at odds with high-level safety. Yeah, there were two types of levels in my experience of command and control cultures. Uh, the lowest level of performance is what we call a force culture, where safety is done to other people. The next level of command and control is more enlightened, and I call this a protective culture. It's more well-meaning and more uh, concerned, but it still doesn't see the value in in. Uh, moving you know moving safety towards having employees workers have a greater tangible say in what they're doing and the third as they move up it's more involvement i call that a with culture we do safety with our workers but the highest level is internalized you got to do it step by step the protective culture is one where Senior officers were held accountable, and it was done at the job site. It was moved from the, the office or the central headquarters to the job site, and it was done by the off-site supervisor. Then the, when they moved towards the involved culture, it was required, JHAs were required of all jobs, and it was written with the input. For the first time, they, they solicited, elicited the input of the workforce, and workers were obligated to stop jobs if conditions change or the methods failed, and they were held to that. But the mindset is it benefits its workers most because it's their bodies and lives on the line. And, there, and there's no coincidence that as they moved up towards internalizing safety, the safety performance got better and better. It is possible to move towards greater internalization with the right guidance and the right leadership approach. Yeah, great examples where um, ownership of the process uh, steadily progressed from uh, management doing something for employees, where over the course of four different stages, uh, ultimately the employees, the people at the work face, the folks uh, facing the hazards, uh, took ownership of that particular process and um, uh, owned it and, and improved the culture as a result. So just mm-hmm. great examples there of um, how over time with a vision for down the line, um, you can uh, you can move your organization through those three or four steps and um, really internalize uh, that particular activity. And of course, JHAs in uh, particularly dynamic workplaces are such a valuable tool. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe in more static workplaces where um, literally everything is proceduralized and there's not much impact um, from you know variables, things like uh, uh, weather, for example, or, or changing work uh, forces, that kind of thing. Um, 
perhaps they're, they're not as valuable or used as much, but certainly in dynamic workplaces, they're such a valuable tool. Absolutely. So let's talk then about, and this is um, what I, I gleaned is the, the most value out of this uh, article is um, it's fine to talk in broad brush about um, how to internalize uh, safety in terms of theory, um, but you're outlining uh, 10 specific what you call keys that organizations can um, consider and see how they best fit for their organization um, to actually do practical things that will help with internalization. So let's run through those because I think there's just um, a lot of real good uh, content and value here. So um, the first key that you outline is exemplify internal safety. So let's uh, let's chat about that one. Okay. So this is this <laughs> this kind of subsumes everything really. Um, and by the way, I like using the word exemplify with leadership rather than the old word model, which to me implies I'm doing this because people are watching and I'm kind of self-conscious about that. Leaders best do this for themselves because it, what they know is it's the way to live. It's consistent with their life and work view is important. So this starts basically by the idea that I don't know everything. No one person in an organization can possibly know everything. And in fact, the people doing the job will always know some things and a lot more things than people who are not currently doing the job, even if they once were. So it means going out of your way to elicit information, elicit feedback, uh, and especially the most important people to elicit this from are the people who are most upset, most angry, most disenfranchised or disillusioned. Taking them aside, and, and one of the things I like to do is take people aside in an area that's okay and comfortable for them, away from other people, so they, they're not looking over their shoulder, so not propping up their image or being a rebel or whatever it might be, where, where I, I say, hey, can I take some notes? And I take notes for several reasons. One is because I don't want to miss anything. Two, very importantly, what I find is that when I ask people, what is going on? What do you feel about our safety uh, performance? And I always start generally with a closed-ended question because it's easier to uh, prime the pump that way. Hey, on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate our safety performance or safety culture, safety, whatever, leadership? And you know, where 10 is great, couldn't be better. One is terrible, couldn't be worse. And they say, ah, it's a four. Okay. And then I'll, I'll say, okay, and I'll write that down. And the reason writing down is useful is one, I remember it, but also it's easier, for, it's easier for me to not become defensive because what I find if you ask people, especially people with a lot of energy about something, negative energy about a, an area, the first things they'll tell you are negative. They won't say, oh, it's been great. They'll just rant and rave till they run out of that kind of steam. And that has value in itself too. And so, that's a really good thing. So solicit from people and groups. And non-defensiveness is absolutely critical. It's easy to talk about things, not so easy to do some of these things. It's hard when people are coming after you and being negative to not be defensive. and make. I, I find that part of exemplifying internal safety is understanding that safety is a, pro, is a process of continuously learning and improvement, of being, being attentive to our surroundings as they change, as, as forces change. So, and it means partnering with people on projects, uh, partnering with external uh, uh, experts, internal experts. These are some of the things that 
that it's a this really we're talking about by exemplifying it means internalizing so the biggest thing i can say is that if something goes wrong or when something doesn't go great rather than looking to reflexively blame or it's out bad luck or whatever it may be which is psychologists call an external locus of control where it's never me it's always somebody else or something else that accounts for bad things all the good things are because of me all the bad things because of somebody or something else to have to to exemplify an internal locus of control to say okay you know there's a lot of factors in this that in this event and let's look at the parts that I, we could have done better in our training. We're going to upgrade our training. We're going to upgrade our PPE, whatever it may be, where the first thing is you exemplify taking personal responsibility and control rather than blaming externally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, a really nice summary for that is a quote from, from the article. It says, the best leaders are confident enough to actively solicit and willingly accept feedback about how to improve safety, leadership, communications, processes, and cultures. Let's talk about item item two, change beliefs through consistent training and reminders. And this implies a couple of things. Um, one is formal training. Um, reminders are informal. They might be um, elements and processes written into um uh, the way organizations do things. My sense is is what you're you're talking about here is um, more informal and just part of how uh, people interact versus kind of formalized training where you cover off some of this internalization stuff. Let's try yeah. about that. It's the messaging that goes out. Again, the texture of the messaging. Part of that is what to say. And the other part of that is what to not say, what to avoid and watch for. And a lot of organizations, especially when leaders and workforces have been around for a while. So we need repetition, but we need to repeat a principle or something we're talking about in a slightly different way all the time. Part of that is making sure as part of exemplifying again that we're not we're not denoting not showing impatience with people it also means that sometimes people change their beliefs on different schedules everyone is different if they don't believe that uh, PP is important they probably won't wear it or they have to be reminded to do it all the time so we might want to be as consistent as possible as persistently patient as possible so one of the examples by changing beliefs that we can do that's very tangible is there is going from the old to the new the old P and P the existing is policies and procedures now again these are important. I'm not saying we should get rid of these or stew them at all. They're very important. But by themselves, they're not enough. So I recommend augmenting them, balancing them with a new PNP, which is principles and practices. One of the ways you change beliefs is you explain to people to their satisfaction, simply, in words they understand, why we're doing this. What can happen? Why we're doing this? Do you have any questions about this? What have you tried? What, what are alternatives to this? And then anchor that, not just the principles to understand, but excuse me, the practices as well. Okay. How does this apply to at your, your 
what you're doing in this job or that job. What do you think? And a lot of this part of the changing beliefs is letting people get rid of by listening and, and questioning, questioning them, let them surface the, the current old belief structure so they can look at it and say, oh, and as I've seen this happen a lot, oh, that, well, that was, and then you can say, well, that was then, but things are different. We don't even use that piece of equipment any longer. I've seen that happen a lot. Okay. Item three is boost personal motivation. And um, part of the dialogue in this subsection um, is indicators of internal safety motivation are reactions such as I do safety for myself. So um, these are tangible things that line managers um, and supervisors would be aware of when they're they're dialoguing with people and uh, would be leading indicators that um, there's some progress towards the internalization of safety. Absolutely, Pat. And I love your saying leading indicators because one of the tangible things, remember I mentioned earlier about what we say and what we make sure we don't say, we have to, to self-monitor ourselves as leaders, is that one of the ways we move from the externalization, external safety leadership would focus on talking about uh, statistics, trailing indicators. And to me, I would highly recommend that when you're talking to work, your workforce, don't talk about statistics because it implies that we see people as statistics. Make it personal. Talk about the personal benefits to people and what they get. So the assumption that people aren't motivated towards safety, I think is fallacious. I think everyone's naturally hardwired to be motivated to protect themselves unless they're very, very ill, but they don't always know what to do. And they've got mixed things going on. They also, sometimes people are motivated in a boring, repetitive uh, job to make things more interesting, exciting for themselves. But being able to understand taking statistics, if you are going to talk about it and make it personal, like I wrote an article called The Left Hand of Safety, in which I, I uh, I quote actually uh, somebody from the University of British Columbia, Dr. Stanley Cor Corwin, who talks about and shows data that left-handed people have a disproportionate share of injuries at, at work and at home and actually have a higher mortality rate. They die at an early age. But if I know anything, I can share that with people and say, now let's bring this down to you. This doesn't mean you're going to get hurt if you're left-handed. It doesn't mean you're going to die early because you're left-handed. It does mean there are forces. Why would this be? There again, we can talk about that. There are forces that make it that are stressors that are, are, are make it more likely for a big population because statistics never predict for an individual. They only reflect a population in the past. So the question is, if you're left-handed, what can you do so you're not one of the statistics and you don't have to be? So that's part of that is, again, putting people in control of their own safety. Part of this, to me, is reconfiguring, reimagining, and re-messaging safety as not just the absence of of injuries, but how do I how do I make my life work better, have more energy, feel better about myself? So part of making it personal, the leaders can use share stories. They can invite other people to talk stories about at home. What are your favorite hobbies? Well, I, I like to, uh, you know, I, I play hockey. Okay, well, use personal protective equipment in hockey, right? And a lot of sports. Can you talk about that? And how do you fit that? Because we have lessons that will apply everywhere at work as well. Eye protection, hand protection, things like that. So these are the kind of things. And, and we have visitors in our home. How do you protect people, visitors in your home or children from being potentially injured because you're the safety director of your own home? 
and another so it's partly through invitation it's partly through sharing stories being taking the lead by being personal ourselves as leaders and through positive motivation are some of the ways to make this personal yeah for sure there's um, just a, an ever-growing trend of um, transferring uh, knowledge and uh, culture um, from the workplace uh, to uh, leisure activities and home activities, um, simply because there's um, hazard everywhere, there's risk everywhere, and um, uh, it just is a, a natural extension to take uh, technique that you learn um, on the job, where typically there there may be higher hazard, um, but apply it as well in your uh, off the job life. It is funny, you know, the the perception of of risk, and you get into some of this earlier in the article where you talk a little bit about kind of the acceptance of risk, and when you're doing safety to people as opposed to asking for their participation and and enabling their participation um, it is interesting where um, if you're exposing someone to risk um, on the job site um, there uh, very frequently will be resistance if they don't participate in the uh, risk identification and, and control process um, and naturally enough you know you're just being told hey just follow this procedure or something and you'll be fine um, and so the acceptance of risk in, in those cases is resisted because they're not a participant. Yet mm -hmm. um, people will um, go and do off-the-job things that are inherently risky, but uh, they will do it because they willingly do it, um, and they uh, presumably prepare themselves, gear themselves, train themselves, um, what have you, to... Uh, to do those particular activities, whether it's, you know, rock climbing or, or whatever that the higher risk uh, type of activity might be. So it's really just uh, an attitudinal thing in terms of um, uh, how one perceives risk, whether it's imposed or whether it's something that they can assess on their own, make their own peace with and mm -hmm. proceed, proceed from a position of, of uh, presumably knowledge and confidence. You know, I fully agree with you. Uh, there is a book called What Color Is Your Parachute? It's a, it's a well-known career uh, book about how to find jobs. And the, one of the theses in the book at the beginning is that when people go, people go to a profession because they're drawn to it, because it fits with who they are and their belief structure and their, view, you know, their worldview. And as they stay in that job over and over in that career or that profession, they get reinforced and become more so. And often one of the big disconnects relevant to what we're talking about here, I think, is that many safety professionals tend to be, in my experience, more more risk averse than general population. I have, you know, I've met lots because I've, I've done a lot of, a lot of work with different organizations and continuing ed programs and all. But I've met a lot of safety professionals at all different levels. I've met very, very few who do high risk activities like bungee jumping, for example. And it's not to say there aren't some, but there are very, very few. And my joke, of course, is that a, a safety professional who bungee jumps probably reads the policies and procedure manual and then ties three bungees to their waist instead of one, you know, they're, they're, that you try to reduce risk. But the idea is that the, often the people we most want to reach are not like us. They're the ones 
that's the most frustrating for us. And the irony is that what I've seen is the default that many safety professionals uh, go to or fall towards when they try to tell people to change their ways and to you know, use PPE, for example. And when they don't listen or they don't comply is to tell them louder, get impatient, get frustrated, as opposed to take a different tact. And one of the things that we find, for example, is that one of the one of the reasons why it's very very useful to invite you know participation and we we have found and we work exclusively now with, with organizations where we train what we call instructor catalysts so we train peer some people call them peer trainers but they're reinforcement agents as well is because sometimes or many times workers will less likely be willing to hear and be receptive to messaging that comes from a safety professional who comes in and out or somebody from far away than they will from some who's a peer working side by side doing their job. And so that is another structural vehicle for internalizing safety that makes it personal because it brings it in. So you're bringing, you're internalizing the process of the messaging. So it doesn't just come from an outside source or a professional from on high or from on far, but it comes from the side much closer to try to promote that from within. Harness discovery is item four and this is really um, I think my sense is more of a an advanced technique this is um, relatively hard to do but when you've got uh, uh, leadership that's empathetic and and uh, is well engaged with the workforce then my sense is that sets up the the conditions to to do much of this harnessing of discovery. Yes, there can be formalized programs um, that uh, reward innovation and those kinds of things. But again, I think you're you're probably leaning more towards just cultural things and being um, attuned to uh, dialogue as it naturally occurs in the workplace, as opposed to having. Um, uh, a format or, or a particular program or, or something that needs to be complied with. So your, your comment here is leaders don't change people. People change themselves while the best leaders help this occur in the easiest and most positive ways. Right. So, and one of the way, the irony is that, as I talked about earlier, is that we have to have a balance, a good, healthy, safe balance between externalization and internalization of safety. And one of the ways you can use external approaches or leader, which is what the leader is doing or messaging or, or, or structuring to harness discovery is to do several things. Number one is to to encourage that. One is that leaders can help set up and encourage and expect pilot projects so that there are many organizations where they are, to, rather than the leader being, ta- or the safety department being tasked, or the ergonomics department being tasked to come up with solutions to a, a vexing problem, they'll, they'll get employees. They'll have different employee groups and they will challenge them to discover, to research, discover, what might be possible alternatives and to test them out. So the best organizations have a great amount of piloting going on all the time. So a lot of this is understanding that what we're trying to do is get people to be thinking for themselves and thinking about rather than just being uh, monkey see, monkey do, check your brains at the time clock, just do as I say and don't think. That's externalized safety. So helping them think through situations because partly people get, I I mean, we we do a lot of work with soft tissue injuries and we know statistically that strains and sprains are very, very much contributed to by what people do all the time. 
on. They're cumulative in nature. That's why little things throw out your back, bending over or whatever, lifting very light things can, quote, create a soft tissue injury. It's the straw that broke the camel's back. So we can't be watching people all the time. But this is a real important reason to internalize safety. Only they can be self-monitoring and watching themselves all the time. So part of that is the challenge about about giving people the skills to do that, being able to pilot, be able to challenge them to come up with better ways. What are some different alternatives for doing that? And what I'd like to do is this group to critique this and see what are the advantages and disadvantages. You're getting people to think you're challenging them to come up with better ways and to discover new ways. The best pilots, by the way, uh, many times when organizations do piloting with best of intention, they don't do it as well as they could because often what many do is they'll take the goody two-shoes group, the group that is having no injuries and doing great and saying, well, you're really advanced. You should be the ones to pilot and, and, and try this new technique. The problem with it is they're already eager. They're already motivated. They're already doing a lot of good things. And more importantly, in the bell curve of employee safety actions and beliefs, they're all the way towards off being off the chart, standard deviations away from the, the median, as opposed to make sure when you pilot that you're finding a representative group, a group that is a sampling, a representative of who your major group in your workforce is. So this is cultural, but it is structural as well. Yeah. Yeah, for certain. Um, Great points there. So let's talk about item five, and this is regarding balance, to upgrade balance. So first, define what you mean by balance, and then um, talk about the concept of upgrading balance. Okay. Well, balance and and really other readily learned skills that are internalized change things. And let me pull back a second and, and talk about that. On January 20th, from when we're, we're recording this, PricewaterhouseCoopers came out with its annual CEO survey. It's a survey of over 600 CEOs. And the title of this particular report was Navigating the Rising Tide of Uncertainty. And there was a lot of uh, lack of confidence denoted for the first time in quite a while among CEOs about the prognosis for business in this next in this upcoming year. But one of the uh, things in the reports that's critical said to upskill or not to upskill is no longer the question. Organizations will have to grow their own future workforce. And in the uh, presentation of this, the CEO of PricewaterhouseCoopers, Bob Moritz said, quote, giving their people the two, it's important to give the their people the tools they need to improve. We would argue that bottoms up approach is the most effective way to go. So anytime you can take a tangible skill that will do double duty, what I call a simultaneous objective. It both internalizes safety, it gets people to start looking at themselves, and it actually helps prevent injuries. This is a great way to tangibly internalize safety. So balance is one that we use because we tend to focus on what we call vexing personal injuries, uh, soft tissue injuries, slip trips and falls, and hand injuries that still are among the worst injuries with many, many organizations. And they unfortunately maintains their uh, level of, uh, of uh, uh, intensity and, and cost and, and uh, numbers all over the place. So the old external approach would be to tell people, lift with your legs, 
do it this way and again tell people what to do exactly how to do it as opposed to here's how you can learn to be more balanced and let them discover and feel for themselves i tell people for example that if you believe as i do that a picture is worth a thousand words a feeling is worth a million words so part of internalization is if you can look for activities where people develop ahas and go, ah, eurekas, ahas, that is really powerful. And I picked on balance because it happens to be something that people can readily learn, not necessarily hiring us. People can learn to do Tai Chi. There's a lot of activities that balance is extremely learnable. Um, Roger Sperry, MD, who won a Nobel Prize for uh, Medicine and Physiology several years ago, said over 90% of the brain's activity is dedicated to balance. Every time you move and move your arms, you're changing your, your weights, where the weight distribution is and balance, that this develops people, that balance increases strength, balance increases energy. Ba- and the other thing about balance that's great for internalization, it's a useful skill that's applicable to off-work activities. Absolutely. So you're, you're talking here very clearly about um, uh, a physical skill set opposed to a mental or attitudinal or knowledge uh, type of feature, you're talking really just being able to uh, balance under load or under um, a normal day-to-day uh, activities that might be going up and down stairs. It could be um, manual material handling in a household or at the workplace. Um, and then uh, more sophisticated uh, motor skills that um, require balance. Uh, whether it's, uh, uh, you had mentioned a martial art there, you had mentioned Tai Chi or any other sort of physical activity, which of course is um, uh, recommended as well for uh, anybody, whether they're employees or or not employees, uh, anyone at any stage of life. So it transcends um, uh, workplace in this particular example. Yeah, and balance is a great way to harness discovery. And all these go together, these points. Are you talking about pushing, pulling, lifting, reaching, climbing with things in your hands, without things in your hand? When you're looking up, when you're looking down, crossing slippery surface. I mean, there's so much to this. It's a challenge. It's a lifelong challenge. But the nice thing about that is specifically balance and any really good skill, again, has so many applications. It's very, very useful and so many rewards at the same time for people that unleashes energy. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard today or liked other podcasts in this series, please leave a review for us on Google or Apple or wherever you access your podcasts. If you'd like to comment directly or have subject matter that you think would be of interest to the Safety with Purpose community and would like to guest on the show, feel free to email me at pat.robinson at safopedia.com or contact me on Twitter at patrobinson2005.